Hello everyone, it's Julie here and welcome back to another episode of Talking STEM with the Women That Shape It. Today I'm delighted to be interviewing Chief Scientist and Vice President of the World Wildlife Fund, Rebecca Shaw. Rebecca is now leading this international organisation in its efforts to conserve our planet, habitats and species. She is perfectly placed for this role with her extensive background in climate science research and her experience in working for the UN's Climate Change Committee. Hi Rebecca, thank you for giving up your time for this interview. I am so pleased to have been asked, so thank you for the invitation. So let's start with what got you interested in climate science? You know, it was, um, it was quite a, a long path. Uh, I originally thought I was going to be a medical doctor. I went to uh, school to train as pre-medical doctor so that I could become a cancer researcher and cure cancer. When, when I went to school, uh, I took my first ecology class and I absolutely fell in love and spent then the next few summers in Baja, California, Mexico, studying uh, scorpions and learning how to scuba dive. And I, I just fell in love with the natural world. As um, a teenager, I didn't even know that was a, an option. And so I took a, a sharp left turn and became a, a natural scientist instead of a medical scientist. Mm, that's interesting. It must have taken quite a bit of courage to change pathways. Did you have, did you have support backing you up or how was that? Oh, yeah. My, um, my parents are always very supportive. I think that it is hard though. It's a really hard thing, particularly when you have your mind set on one thing and everything uh, in your life is helping to direct you in that, like, that one way. Mm. Um, stepping back from the flow and just thinking about what it is you really want is, a, is and then actually decisively making, uh, taking a new direction is not easy. And so it's really important that you listen to what you really want and what really excites you, because that's where you're going to find the greatest pleasure and the most success in your career. Mm, that's really good advice. Yeah. Next, could you tell us a bit more about your current role at the WWF? And so I'm the chief scientist of WWF International. So I oversee um, uh, how we use science in our strategies and in our policy making and in all our projects on the ground around the world. So making sure that not only are we putting in place activities that are going to uh, benefit nature and people, but also to make sure that when uh, that we're measuring and monitoring our activity so that um, we understand completely what our impact is having on the ground for nature and people. Our mission says that we will live in harmony with nature and we try to make sure that we're measuring our activities to make sure that that's the case and that we're building a better world for the next generations to come. Mm. Well, it sounds like such an exciting job and position to be in. Oh yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Mm. And um, I, it could be from the working at WWF or from your research, but could you pick out one of the most exciting moments of your career so far? I'll tell you, there, there's two things that drive you as a scientist. One's just loving information and loving how ideas and, and um, 
different parts of the system interact and you can study them. That is just really fun. And that you can do that alone. And that's an amazing, uh, that's an amazing career. What I've been able to do that is really important to me is to do that and to connect it to real world outcomes where I can see a difference and I'm making a difference in people's lives and uh, creating a better world. And so it's when those two things come together that I get most excited. So if we have, if we are working for years and years and years to make sure that a, uh, a very special ecological place, it can be uh, protected and that the people in, that are there to make sure that they can steward that protection long into the next generations. That's very exciting. And I've had that happen a number of times. Um, Santa Cruz Island off the coast of, of California, um, work that I've done in Brazil on uh, protected areas there, and also work in Africa. So it's where you see it, people and nature coming together and stewarding uh, for the benefit at all, stewarding uh, uh, the ecology for the benefit at all, which is really the most exciting thing. Mm. I was also really excited when the Paris Agreement was signed uh, that gave the indication that we were going to really work hard uh, globally to uh, limit the impacts of climate change. That was also a very exciting outcome, very world, real world impact, and the science really helped to deliver that outcome. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read a bit of your like background and biography, and I, I think it's very interesting the fact that you were working on climate science and climate change many years before it was this big thing that it is today and that everyone knows about. So you're very much at the sort of forefront of this. I, my next question is a little bit more about your research. So I know that uh, several pieces of your research have been published in leading journals such as Science and Nature. Could you tell us a bit more about one of those research projects? Yeah, uh, sure. I think one of the one of the really interesting areas of research that I got into um, was looking at the impacts of climate change on uh, natural systems and trying to understand what it would take to mitigate that those impacts um, and also how you would think about adapting a natural system to those impacts. And so I did a number of studies in California early on, uh, looking at how species would move in response to climate change, and then how the protected area system, so, so parks, large parks and wilderness areas would need to reshape, be reshaped over time to allow them to move. So you can't really do that. So a lot of what uh, I was studying was if you can't do that, so you have a park here and you have a park here and you have one animal, say it's a, say it's some kind of um, a salamander that can, lives in this kind of habitat, but the habitat moves with climate change. How does it, it, salamander can't move. So what's it going to do if it can't move to its new habitat? So I had a lot of research going on trying to figure out how you could create conditions so, so a salamander or tree species or something could move from one place where it used to be able to live to its new place. Sometimes if you're talking about animals, you, you build corridors, you allow for 
there to be a way for them to walk. If you're talking about trees and, and plants that can't walk, then you have to take them from one place where they used to live to their new place where they have to live. And those are called translocations. And so I just spent a lot of time figuring out if we're going to mess with the world at this kind of scale, how is the natural world going to adapt to it and how can we help? And so that was a really cool uh, time in my research where I spent a lot of time about how would you do it for different kinds of animals, for different kinds of species, how much would it cost, who would need to be involved to make sure that we were successful, how would you monitor it? And so it was just really fun to think about um, the winners and losers in species and what we could do to make them winners in a climate change world. Mm, fascinating. So next, I would really like to hear what, in your opinion, what is one of the most worrying and visible effects of climate change? So one of the things that I think is really interesting about climate change is that there are so many scientists like myself working on this around the globe that are really trying to understand what's going to happen in and so we've been doing this for about 25 years or so. What I think is most concerning is that we're almost always underestimating how big the impacts are going to be, which means we're seeing impacts of changing storms, changing fires, uh, changing species distributions, you know, like animals are moving. Those things are happening much faster than we ever thought they were going to. And somehow we're always more optimistic in our estimates than, um, than reality actually, mm. it actually allows us to be. And so one of the things I find concerning is we have to move faster than ever to stop climate change from happening. We're not moving fast enough. We have to move so much faster. We have to demand more of our, our leaders we need to do more as individuals to curb greenhouse gas emissions, and we just aren't doing it fast enough. We're not changing fast enough. So one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is how do people change their mind? Like if you're going to do something really different tomorrow, how did, what do you need in order to make it? Is it, what are your incentives you need? Do you need a bunch of your friends to be with you to do it? Do you need to create a club or a group so a lot of you do it at the same time so, it, so that you feel like you're part of a community? I don't know, but that's a really important question to be answered because right now we're really counting on people everywhere to do something big about climate change and it's, it's not happening fast enough yet. So that's what worries me the most. Yeah, I think that's, that's inter really interesting that, I mean, you talk about it, this integrated approach to science. Mm -hmm combining social sciences, psychology, because to fight climate change, we don't just need the technologies. Well, actually, that leads me on nicely to the next question, which is practically, what can young people like me do to help protect their environment and the wildlife that inhabits it? Well, first and foremost, if you're in um, a democracy and you can vote, you have to vote. You have to have your voice be heard and be heard really loudly. You should also vote in your social media. You should make sure that people know where you stand in your views and, that, and you should make your views known in very smart ways, either through, you know, through social media or through writing articles or through congregations or making clubs to go after an issue that's really important in your community or it's really important in many communities around the globe, but you're gonna do, 
create action in your own community. The other thing is, and it's, it's, um, is really think about how you consume things. So by consume, I mean what you eat, uh, what kind of car you have, you know, how many new pieces of clothing you have to have every year, whether you can upcycle or recycle things. It's really important to think about that because every new thing that we buy creates a more demand on the earth and creates more climate change. So every little action we do every day can help uh, limit climate change. And the third thing is cut back on uh, your eating meat in particular. So people always ask me, and I, I did this study, this is one of the things that got me, began to get me interested in uh, climate change when I was 16 years old. I, I did a study in my biology class about how many acres it would take to feed me in my lifetime if I ate meat every day versus if I ate animal protein versus if I ate plant protein. You get the same nutrition, but how many acres mm. is it going to take to feed me in my lifetime? And it was so much bigger. I mean, it was it was farms and farms and farms to feed me in my lifetime if I ate meat versus if I ate a plant-based diet. So I became a vegetarian. I'm not anymore. I was a vegetarian for 10 years. But what I did, did do is I stopped eating certain types of meat and that have really big environmental impacts. And I really cut back on the meat consumption. And now I don't worry when people serve me meat when I go to out to dinner, I, I eat it, I'm happy, but then I just don't eat that much the rest of the week. And it makes a big impact on the planet. So that's one of the things that's pretty easy to do. So those three things are really think about being involved in voting, really get activated in your community around the things that you care most about. And if you think about your consumption, think about one or two things you can do to really to, to contribute to a better earth. Ooh, that's really good advice and I love how that third one stems from like kind of your inspiration moment in your biology class I think that's really yes good. exactly um next I'd like to ask you a couple of my favorite questions which are firstly what scientific development do you hope to see happen in your lifetime so I I think about science very broadly but uh both natural science physical science and the social sciences I think that we have had so many technical and um, natural science innovations in the last hundred years. Just, it, it, just look at what's happened to technology in the last 10 years. I think we need our social capacity to deal with all that technology, to live with each other in, um, in a sustainable way and to live on the planet that, so that we're not creating problems. I think a lot of the focus needs to be on the social sciences, like how on behavior sciences and cognitive science. So I would like to see some major advancement that helps us understand where all of us can have really good lives and really enjoy our friends, but also be doing that in a way that creates a stable climate and fresh air for everybody to breathe and clean water. So I think it's that intersection. That's that side. How do we 
get people to think about their own good health and well-being and also the health of the planet and be able to think about both of those things every day and everything we do. What is the social science that's going to get us there? I think that's what I would really like to see. Unfortunately, I'm not a social scientist, so I can only talk about how cool it would be to have that. I'm not going to actually make it happen myself. <laughs> that's still great. Though. I'd, I'd really like to see something like that developed too. Penultimately, um, if you could have a conversation with any living or dead scientist, who would it be? I think it would be Rachel Carson. So Rachel Carson, uh, you may have known of her. She wrote a book that was published in 1962. She wrote the book called Silent Spring. And it was, um, you know, she came from a really hard background in uh, Pennsylvania. She lived on a farm. She had to pay her way through school. She was, she took care of her family. She took care of her nieces. She, she was constantly trying to continue to get her education and work to take care of her family and advance, uh, be creative and be really think hard about how the kind of impact she wanted to have on the world. And she started writing. She was a really good scientist and a really good storyteller. And this is a really powerful combination even today. She wrote a book, um, a series of books about uh, the sea. She was a biologist working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. But she was really, she was writing for a lot of magazines about the natural world and about the ocean in particular. And then she did a series of magazine articles for The New Yorker. Uh, and then the book came out in the fall called Silent Spring. And it was about how the use of pesticides was killing more than just the insects that it was intended to kill, in particular DDT. And she talked about the, that even though they were intended to do good, they had so much impact on the natural world that we were going to wake up in the future and have a silent spring. And silent spring means no birds would be singing, no insects would be chirping, um, no mammals would be moving through the forest and that it would just be silent, a silent spring. And so she created this, she looked at the problems she had today in, at that time with the use of pesticides. She created this story about a silent spring and then she wrote chapter after chapter about what that would mean and what it would look like in the water, in the forests, in the grasslands, on the farms, and in the oceans. And by combining the science and storytelling, she changed the way we all thought about the natural world. You know, leading up after that, there were so many laws and so many policies that were changed that uh, allow us to have cleaner air and cleaner water and more pesticide regulation than we did before. And we really started looking at the human impacts and the human health and the natural impacts of, of our farming systems. Really important questions even today. And so I like that she was able to do the two things she loved the best, the science and the storytelling. She brought them together and she had a huge impact. So that's what I would hope for all of us, right? That we could all do that really well. Yeah, well, that's, that's really, and yeah, like you say, it's bringing two of her passions together. Mm -hmm. And this is why I said, was saying earlier, really pay attention to those passions, right? Really pay attention to them because you will be able in your future 
to combine your passions in unique ways that will have a different kind of impact that nobody else has ever had. Like, I'm not going to have the same impact that Rachel Carson had, but I can learn from her inspiration and how she, even though she had to work really hard because she was supporting her entire family, how she was able to pull it all together and really have an impact in a way that, in the way that was true to herself. Yeah. That's such brilliant advice. And well, you've given a lot of, of really good advice during this interview. Um, but for my last question, if you have any left to give, um, from all your experience, what advice would you give to any young girls interested in a career in STEM? I would say really go after it. There will be so many times, you know, it's so fun. If, you, if it really drives you and it, it has to, in your heart, you have to know it drives you, right? Like you're really interested because if you're not, it's really hard to do it. It's hard to do anything if you're not interested. So, but if you're really interested, go after it and don't take no for an answer. And don't worry if you, what, at one subject you don't do so well because you will find your passion and you will be able to build on that. And it's really, there's so much you have to learn before you get to the core of your passion. You know, if you go through school, you've got to take all of these classes because all the information builds on, on itself. But once you find that passion and then you can actually apply it in a way that makes you happy every day, it's very, very easy to keep it going. You know, it's just, and so be really true to yourself, find what you really love to do and don't take no for an answer and don't let anybody tell you you don't belong at the table because you absolutely do. Great, that's really good. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you're such a great role model and I'm sure your story will inspire lots of listeners. Oh, I'm really grateful. Thank you so much. And I wish you the very best in what you do. Thanks again, Rebecca Shaw, for being such a brilliant guest. And to all listeners, I hope you're feeling empowered to make change in your community and maybe even consider a career in climate science. Thank you for listening and please join me next week as I interview an inspiring female scientist who is from yet another fascinating field of STEM. <laughs>